If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus chapter 19 uh, for our Old Testament Scripture reading. It's a passage we've already had read um, a few weeks ago, and yet it's a passage that our Savior returns to in our sermon text this morning as we continue making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Leviticus chapter 19, we'll read verses 17 and 18. Here Moses describes what true love for a neighbor consists in, even uh, when we have disagreements with our neighbor, and what it is that we should do. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, if you'll turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, for our New Testament Scripture reading, we'll read, again, just two brief verses, verses 13 and 14. Here, Paul speaks of the great freedom that has been secured for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now the duties we owe one another because we have been made free from bondage to sin. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Keeping in mind the fact of all these things, let us turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 trying to show from various readings this repeated emphasis on loving our neighbor that Scripture gives. And Jesus Himself, who describes in the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, the extent and scope of who our neighbors truly are. Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 43 to 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's Word. Let us go before the Lord and ask that He illuminate our hearts and instruct us in the path of wisdom and love. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and as uh, your Son commands uh, to us our obligations. We pray that you would correct those misunderstandings that we hold, even as we consider the whole scope of your written word, that we might be diligent to keep every facet of all you have commanded us to do for the sake of the honor and glory of your Son who died and was raised for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Over the past six weeks now, we've been considering six distinct contrasts that our Savior has been giving. 
Six particular commands that Christ has given to reorder how it is that we are to live our lives in accordance with that righteousness that must run deeper than the superficial religiosity of the day and age. We, see of, we have seen over the past several weeks the vast chasm that exists between that superficial righteousness and the heart-felt righteousness that Christ requires and provides through the giving of a spirit. Six times our Lord has said, you have heard it was said. And then he provides the course corrective, but I say to you, and I think speaking personally, it seems to me as if for every one of these six commands, he has ratcheted up each of these commands with an increasing intensity. Not that it started off uh, with any amount of ease as he began to speak of the dangers of anger and lust. Hard enough as those commands were, and are, and continue to be, he then begins to speak of the rigors, the contours of marital fidelity, and keeping our word in all things, even the tiny things, not simply the things that we are summoned to oath and vow. And last week we considered the requirement that he places upon the citizens of heaven in repudiating our desire for retaliation, even when the law allows for it. But here I think comes the greatest challenge of all, where our Savior Himself now calls us not simply to repudiate our rights to justice when wronged, but now He calls us in praying that the ones who wronged us would be restored. I can think of no greater moral challenge than to be hurt for doing good and then to respond with a sincere, tender kindness and compassion, not just to their face, but also behind their back. And also behind closed doors as we pray about them and speak about them to the Lord of heaven and earth. And yet this is the very command that Jesus gives to the citizens of heaven this morning. There are three things I'd like us to consider today. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of restricted love. You'll see that here in verse 43. Then I'd like us to consider the matter of unrestricted love in verses 44 to 47. And then finally, the matter of perfect love in verse 48. So restricted love, unrestricted love, and perfect love. Jesus speaks here of the final contrast between the religious traditions of his day and his own commands. The rabbis of the day had apparently taught what they undoubtedly thought was the biblical imperative, love your neighbor and therefore hate your enemy. But if we were to do a brief survey of the five books of Moses, which I've tried to give just a sampling in the Scripture readings this morning, you will find that Moses never gives those two commands together. In fact, he never gives the second half of the commands of what the rabbis of Jesus' day and age were saying. Nowhere does it say, you shall hate your enemy. Rather, what we find is this, that the second greatest commandment, in fact, the sum of the entire law is this, that you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Perhaps the question should be, how much do you love yourself? Here we find that though greater than Moses, Christ himself has already said, looking back in verse 21, that he has come not to repudiate or abolish the law of Moses, but rather to fulfill it. In other words, Jesus is not saying something contrary to what Moses has already taught. Jesus is providing a course corrective for the way in which the people of his own day 
had misunderstood God's inerrant word. And yet at the same time, Jesus' command here to love our enemies raises, I think, two critical questions, particularly for those of us who are familiar with the Old Testament. I think it's interesting that you read of uh, the great modern novelists of our time, and so many of them who love the New Testament in their private letters would speak of how much they hate the Old Testament, in particular because of these commands to violence that we see. Leo Tolstoy, for instance, or even A.A. Milne, reportedly, the author of Winnie the Pooh, uh, thought that the Old Testament was the greatest blemish on Christianity. I think he's wrong, by the way. In fact, it's one of the earliest heresies the church had to reckon with. How do you reconcile the Old Testament and the New Testament? And it hinges really largely uh, on this particular command. How are we able to reconcile the fact that Jesus, in one sense, is saying, I'm not saying anything different than Moses. You should love your neighbor as yourself, even your enemies. How do we square that with the reality of the Canaanite conquest, the so-called Canaanite genocide, I think misappropriately named? And how do we deal with the reality of the so-called imprecatory psalms that David himself prays in the Psalter? You see, if we are to confess that the whole of God's Word is infallible and inerrant, these are difficult questions that arise, and we cannot and we must not skirt the difficult questions. I think we must remember the scope of the history of salvation when we read God's Word. Particularly in the Old Testament, what God was doing in pictorial form for the people of God was He was cleansing a holy land, the land of Canaan, to make way for a holy people that they might dwell with a holy God. And certainly when we read Deuteronomy, just as Israel is about to make its way into the land of Canaan, the Lord Himself does command that Israel is to engage in what is known as harem warfare that they are to put to the sword every man, woman, and child living within the bounds of Canaan. They are not uh, to pity or to spare. And yet what we must recognize is that particular command given to Israel was a unique command for a particular moment in time and a particular place in that particular moment in time. One of the things that you'll also find when you read the book of Moses is that Israel was not being given a blank check to exterminate all of her enemies. Rather, the command for this extermination was to transpire only within the bounds of the promised land. And the Lord is very clear as to why that was to happen. Israel was to serve in a unique capacity as God's arm, God's sword of justice because the cup of the iniquity of the Canaanites had reached their brim. And so in an act of final judgment, the Lord had come to exterminate a wicked nation that was engaging in gross sexually immoral practices, child sacrifice, and idolatry. He had given them time to repent, and yet they had refused. And so Israel was called to be the great servant of the Lord in executing God's justice. I think this is important to recognize Because Israel at the same time was not permitted to do that same act to those outside the borders of Canaan. 
We find something similar with David, the great king of Israel. It was his task to bring the conquest of Canaan to completion. In fact, even under his son Solomon, one of the great things that's extolled about Solomon is that he finally brings an end to that moment and phase in Israel's history. In other words, that particular command was unique to the situation. It was not a general principle to be carried out throughout all time. It does not give us the right to execute a moral crusade such as the church had done in the Middle Ages. And even though we have that with David, it brings up into view that second question of David's own prayers. As David prays to the Lord for aid to bring completion, to bring to completion the justice of God, Psalm chapter 58, as he prays, O Lord, break their teeth. Even Psalm 139, the great, the great baby psalm. Praise you, O Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and yet how does that psalm end? O Lord, align my heart to hate your enemies to love your people. Do I not hate those who hate you? Do I not love those who love you? These are hard prayers to reckon with. I think even within the Reformed Church, there's diversity of opinion on how to reckon with it because it's a difficult question. Are these prayers somehow sub-Christian? Or are they unique in a particular time and place, or are they reflective of the prayer David prays as the representative of Christ, who is praying for final justice to be brought to an end? And I'm not claiming to give all the answers here, and I don't think you have to be- uh, uh, believe everything I say on this moment, but it is a question we have to wrestle with as we come to consider Jesus' own command to us in this day and age. Let me just make a few brief points about those so-called imprecatory psalms. First, we must recognize when we read the psalms and David's prayers to that regard, they are not prayers of personal vendetta. Oh Lord, Jimmy slapped me in the face. He stole my lunch money. Break his teeth. Rather, these prayers of imprecation, these prayers for the Lord to bring judgment on his enemies are a prayer for the establishment of God's kingdom. They are not retribution prayers for personal wounded egos being hurt in a Saturday tiff at the farmer's market. Second thing to notice that in those so-called prayers that David prays in the Psalter, David is not taking matters into his own hand. Rather, he is entrusting the outcome to the Lord. He says, oh Lord, I'm praying that you would do this. Bring about final justice. In fact, what we find is when we read several of those imprecatory psalms, because there are a lot of them in the psalms, we find David's dismay in the midst of several of these prayers because of the fact that he is being persecuted, not because he is mistreating his enemy, but because of the very fact that he is loving his enemy and treating him like a friend. Psalm 109, O Lord, they encircle me with words of hate and they attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. And so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. What we find is David is enacting the very thing that Jesus is commanding us today, that we are to love our neighbors. We find here the prayers of David himself reflecting the pain that he's undergoing as he's praying still for those who are harming him. And finally, when you read those prayers in the Psalms, we find a man, David, who is not above the law, but under it. So many times, David, and particularly in Psalm chapter 7, I think what is the kind of uh, uh, 
uh, the model, the, uh, the, 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 the quintessential imprecatory psalm. David first prays before he prays for judgment to fall upon his enemies. He says, O oh Lord, if I have done wrong, may judgment fall upon me as well. Echoing the words later of Peter in 1 Peter 4, that judgment begins at the house of God. You see, this is not a, a cry for retribution or personal vendetta. This is a cry that God's justice would be established, and he's praying, O oh Lord, include me in that prayer. Set my heart aright, that we might love the good and hate the evil. In other words, those imprecatory psalms are not vigilante hymns. But they do picture for us Christ's unique position as the executor of God's end-time justice on the final day. And yet, even as Christ has been entrusted with that end-time judgment, it is Christ who alone has been committed the authority to execute judgment on the last day. Now, as king, he commands his church to carry out a particularly different mission until that final day. Jesus, who will pay and reckon evil, reckon with evil on the last day. He tells us, that is not your prerogative. Vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord. Rather, your job is to love your neighbor as yourself. Perhaps when we step back and we look at the history of Israel, and again, I think those are the two major issues that people struggle with, pastorally speaking, in reading the Old Testament, the Canaanite conquest and the imprecatory Psalms. And yet, I do not think that they run contrary or antithetical to the very thing Jesus is giving here. Maybe we could put it like this. Though Israel was ordained to be God's servant of justice against the Canaanites, with the rest of the nations, Israel was called to be God's servant of mercy. They were to be a light to the Gentiles and a blessing to the nations. It's the very thing that the Lord had promised Abraham. It's the very thing that the Lord had said to Abraham, through you all the nations will be blessed. Of course, you might be asking why this history lesson. This seems to be going way off the rails. Well, I don't think it is. Because we find that the people of Jesus' own day have taken the Old Testament and misunderstood their own historical narrative and so misunderstood what their own duty in this particular time and place and salvation history required. The religious culture of Jesus' day had ripped the Old Testament commands and prayers out of their particular and unique context. They had now appropriated them towards different ends. They had, we might put it like this, subverted God's word to be used towards a national rather than an evangelical agenda. Israel's mission was to be a light to the nations, and yet, in Jesus' day, we hear whispers, even in the synagogues, of revolutionary fervor that it was the task of the people of God to take up arms against the Roman government. Here we find the people of Jesus' own day had come to act less like Abraham, Moses, and David, and they were acting an awfully, more, awfully a lot more like Jonah. I think you're familiar with the prophet Jonah. That prophet who was sent to Israel's foe that dwelt beyond the boundaries of Canaan, the Assyrians. And yet as the Lord calls Jonah to proclaim a message of repentance to the Assyrians, Jonah runs in the exact opposite direction. You make it to Jonah chapter 3. 
And Jonah is very clear why he runs in the opposite direction. He says, Lord, he says, I know that you are a God merciful and compassionate and gracious. And I don't want you to be merciful to my own personal enemies. I don't want you to be merciful to the enemies of the nation. But I know you will be. That's why I ran. It's condemnation upon the nation, even as the prophet does not want to be a light to the nations. You see, history matters. The Jews of Jesus' own day had distorted history and subverted the Word of God to, form, to, uh, to, to serve a nationalist agenda. Rather than to put them on the heavenly trajectory that God's Word had set forth from the very beginning. And so when it comes time for this command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, when asked who their neighbor was, the people of Jesus' own day would simply say, well, my neighbors are my friends and my family, those who are like me, those who I like. And so I shall love my neighbor, but my, but my enemy, nope, I'm permitted to hate him. And then they proof text out of context, as it were. Many of these passages that we find in the Old Testament well, here we see that Jesus begins to shatter these very notions. He reorders how we are to read the Old Testament even aright. And he shows in the process how restricted our own affections, how our, uh, restricted our own loves truly are. Even as the people of Jesus' own day had restricted the scope of God's commands. We see this here in verses 44 and 47, 44 to 47, as Jesus begins to say, well, this is what I'm telling you. This is what loving your neighbor really looks like. In April 1518, in Heidelberg, Germany, Martin Luther participated in a scholastic disputation, kind of a, 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 a medieval, early modern equivalent of what we might consider a modern academic conference. And here Luther begins to speak on God's love and how God's love differs from human love. Man's love, Luther writes, seeks that which it finds to be lovely. It's natural human affection. A man sees a woman, he says, well, mama, and he seeks to make her his because he finds something naturally beautiful about her. It's not a bad thing, but Luther's point here at the Heidelberg Disputation is this, that God's love is far greater. God's love does not pursue what he finds to be lovely, but he sets his affections on the unlovable, and he makes them lovely. You see, there is nothing lovely to be found in us. God does not look upon us and go, ah, oh, man, you know, Jim Bob makes a really good tuna casserole. David really is a kind person. I think I'm going to save him. No, the Lord looks on miserable sinners and as he looks on the face of the earth and finds that there are none righteous, there are no, not one, he sends his spirit to work in their hearts to change them because of his own boundless love, because God does what he wants. Such is the greatness and nature of God's love. It is an unrestricted love in one sense. As Jesus, as the Father sends the Son and pours out his spirit to love his enemies and draw sinners to himself. What Jesus is saying now is that our love, human love, 
must start to model the divine love as we begin to love not only friends and family, but we begin to love our enemies as well. So what does it look like to love your enemy? I think that's the natural question. First, as we consider our Savior's own words, we need to recognize what it's not. It's, we should not pretend that the church does not have enemies. That's, that's not loving. The church really does have enemies. And secondly, we should not pretend that it's not painful when somebody harms us or maligns us. That's not just. See, the kind of love that Christ is calling for his citizens is not a love that's found simply by being nice. No, this is something that takes greater courage. This is something that takes greater strength. This is something that takes greater fortitude and long-suffering and patience and all those various fruit that can only occur if the Spirit were to work in our hearts. As the Spirit begins to mold us and to shape us, to love our enemies, even as Christ loved his own enemies. And so the kind of love that Jesus is speaking about here is this, that when we are sinned against, that we recognize that we have indeed been sinned against, and that that sin is gross, and that sin is treacherous, that sin is real, that sin is painful. And knowing that there is now a breach that stands between the person who has harmed you and you, and even in the midst of that, to look at them square in the face and overlook their transgressions and cover their sins in long-suffering and forbearance. And even behind closed doors to begin to pray for the reconciliation and restoration. It requires great wisdom. I'm not saying to put yourself intentionally in harm's way, that you're continually being subjected to various forms of abuse, whether it be uh, domestic or whatever. That's not the point. The point is that the type of love that Jesus is speaking about here is a love that suffers. You know, the modern translations will speak of patience. I like the older word, which is long-suffering, because I think that really gets at what is at stake here. It is a costly love, and this is the very thing that Christ is summoning his people to do, not just for the people that we like, but for the people that, according to human nature, we should hate. Christ calls us, rather, to love Love seeks the good of your enemies, not just your friends. Again, this is not a sloppy agape. This is not like pretending that sin is not a big deal, but rather recognizing that sin is, in fact, a big deal, and nevertheless overlooking those transgressions and seeking to have them restored, if at all possible. And praying that God's mercy would triumph over His judgment, a judgment that is rightfully due the offender. That is not weak love. It takes tremendous strength. And it is a strength that only the Holy Spirit can provide. And here we find that the ultimate purpose in doing this is more important than hoping that they would repent and be forgiven. Of course, that is part of our hope. But Jesus says here, more important than that, is that you might love as your heavenly Father loves. In one sense, this is about your heart just as much perhaps more so than it is about theirs. Learning to love regardless of the consequences, 
This is not a manipulation tactic. Hey, if somebody is, is stealing your lunch money, just be nice to them, and eventually one day they'll stop stealing your lunch money. That's not the promise that Jesus is giving here. No, Jesus is teaching us that we have to learn to love how our Father loves us, regardless of how they respond. And that's painful. It's a love that seeks the good of our enemy, even when we don't know what the outcome or the solution is going to look like, even as we entrust that matter to the Lord's hands, which will end one day either in their restoration or in their consummate judgment. But that is in the Lord's hands. The Lord is the judge. Jesus says, vengeance is mine. I'm the one who repays, but it is your job to love. It is your job to suffer long. It is your job to forbear. It is your job to bear patiently through pain and trial. This is the cross. If the weapons of Israel's warfare under the old covenant were carnal, that of the sword as they brought execution and judgment upon the enemies of God, well, here under the new covenant, the weapons of our warfare are much different. And yet they are mighty, as Paul says, to the tearing down of strongholds as we wrestle, wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And the weapon of war that the church is called to brandish is the love that won us into the arms of our Savior as well. Isn't it so interesting that the end of Ephesians, the armor of God that the Christian is called to don is an armor that is found in righteousness and truth and peace, salvation in the very Word of God. We are not called to take up swords against our enemy. Rather, we are called to learn to perfect the art of loving everyone around us, both friend and foe alike. We see that here in verse 48. Just as the Lord causes the sun and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, so we are called to love our enemies as well. Just as one masters the art of the violin or refines his skill as a carpenter, so Christians are called to perfect the practice of charity, of loving your enemies just as God loves his enemies. God is perfect. He doesn't need to learn to do this. This is who he is by nature. And yet because we've been adopted as sons into a new family, this is a process that we have to learn. It's like learning to ride a bicycle. It might not happen overnight. But the Lord puts each of us through particular situations and trials as He trains us to love as He loves. As He trains us to love others even as He has loved us in our own hard-heartedness and stiff-necked ways. This is really the guild secret of the citizens of heaven. You see plastered all over the news in various forms of protest marches, special interest groups, advocacy campaigns, love is love. And though they might have small slivers of what real love is, it is the church where true divine love is found. Everything else is just a fake carbon copy of a carbon copy of a carbon copy. You read about in, uh, you know, prior to the Industrial Revolution, uh, for those who were, let's say, a blacksmith or a tanner, or whatever trade you were involved in, you had your family secrets, your trade secrets, so that your family would be the best blacksmith or sword maker or butcher in town or whatever. Well, we might say that 
the art of love, the art of charity is the great trade secret, is the guild secret of the citizens of heaven. As our Savior here teaches us what it looks like truly to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's why he calls us salt and light. We are the one, the, the, the church is the light on a hill. The church is the city set on, you know, it, 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 that is the light shining in darkness. Not Washington, D.C. Not fill-in-the-blank advocacy group. Not fill-in-the-blank political party. The church is the visible manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. And this is the trade secret we have, that we are called to love our enemies as ourselves. Because the church alone possesses this art and wisdom of practicing love because we've been given the Spirit. Who here could do this apart from the work of the Spirit in our own lives? It's such a tall order, and I think this is one of the things that Jesus is driving at. In in one sense, these commands in one sense, should drive us to despair as we, we come to the end of ourselves and recognize that we are not perfect. And yet Jesus gives the command to be perfect, perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You go, how is that even possible? And yet the great news of the gospel is the very thing that God commands is the very thing that he provides in giving us his Son and his Spirit. You see, God's love is not only the model for human love, God's love is also the source for how it is that we love. You know, if you were to uh, uh, move to another country and you decided one day that you wanted to become a citizen of that country, you would more than likely have to learn the laws of that land and take a citizenship test, learn to abide by the rules and customs of that particular kingdom or nation, So too we find here in the Sermon on the Mount, we are being given the law of heaven. And as we we are now being brought into that heavenly citizenry, even as strangers and exiles here on earth, we have to learn to adopt to that new code of conduct as we have been adopted into a brand new family. And so Jesus models for us that life of love a love that finds its expression in forbearance and prayer. Even as he is led to the cross, Christ never retaliates. Even as he is insulted, he does not return tit for tat. Even as he is crucified, what is it that he prays? Father, forgive them. Even as he claims, I have the right to summon legions of angels to come to my deliverance, he foregoes that. He, 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 he abstains from that natural right, as it were, and rather fulfills the law by saying, Father, forgive them. May the most heinous act that has ever befallen the face of the earth, the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God, be the means by which the enemies of God are reconciled to Him. And here we come back to the logic of the cross where everything becomes tipsy-turvy. Everything is turned upside down because it runs so antithetical to natural man. Love delights to see mercy triumph over judgment. Does love want justice? Yes, Love wants to defend the defenseless, but love also seeks, if at all possible, that the sinner might be reclaimed and that the parties might be restored. Jesus models for us what wondrous love this is. But as I already said, this is not merely a model. This is not a bare model. We go, okay, read this and and just feel really bad about how you don't do this and try harder. 
No, we find here that Christ Himself is also the source of strength who, who teaches us to love our enemies, but then says, I'm going to give you my spirit so that you can. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. So the love of God has been poured out and lavished into our hearts by the giving of His Holy Spirit. His Spirit who now works in us to crucify our own desires and drives for revenge. Who enables us and molds us and shapes us to love even as He has loved us. Even while we were still sinners. Even while we were still enemies of the cross. He subjected us by the word of His grace and the power of His Spirit. And so now He calls us to cultivate a life of meekness and love. A life that is not done. A lifestyle that is not uh, 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 performed by drumming up a bunch of sentimental, emotional hogwash. As if we were just simply to go to the Hallmark card store and read enough Hallmark greeting cards, and then we might be sentimental enough to love those around us. Rather, our Savior commands us what we are to do, but He grants His command by giving His Spirit that we might walk in the fullness of life and love and keep in step with the Spirit as He leads us and guides us. So I think here's where the question of Jesus' command gets really eminently practical. How do you love your enemies? Well, Jesus binds up and binds together love for our enemies with praying for them. So that practical question then is this. How often do you pray for your enemies? If you reflect back on the course of your life of the people who have hurt you and harmed you in serious ways, the people who have maligned you and mistreated you and secretly abused you, what do you pray about them when you are alone and in prayer before the throne of God above. You see, that's what love looks like, among other things, here in this passage. Again, it's not by pretending that the wounds aren't painful. It's not found in simply being nice. Rather, this love is demonstrated consummately in what you do behind closed doors when no one is looking, when it is just you and your Heavenly Father. That when you're mistreated, what is it that you pray about? Who is it that you pray for? Certainly, if you're in the midst of trouble and agony, it is fine to pray. And actually, I encourage you to pray for deliverance and to seek help in serious situations that require police intervention or pastoral intervention. But also remember this, that Christ calls us to pray not only for ourselves, but He also calls us to pray for the benefit and well-being of those who hurt us for the good of those who slander us, for the, for the good of those who abuse and persecute us. He calls us here to take this effort behind closed doors and to pray even when no one else is looking. It's the very thing Jesus is going to get at next in chapter 6. And what does true religion look like? And the substance of that is found in the very things that you do behind closed doors. We must take effort to do these things behind closed doors, to pray for those who have hurt us, either as individuals, as families, as a church, and to continue to pray for repentance and reconciliation, because this is the path that our Savior has walked, and now He calls us as the great trailblazer of the faith to walk 
in His path. That as we do this, we will shine as light in a dark place and exhibit that kind of heavenly righteousness that shatters the hollow righteousness of the self-satisfied and the self-righteous. That we might learn to be perfect, even as our Father in heaven already is perfect, to the glory of Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, what uh, tremendous duty you have placed upon us, and we confess we are not able to do this apart from the work of your Son and your Spirit. We pray that as your Son even lives above now to make intercession for us, we pray that you would grant us the strength through his intercession uh, to love as Christ has loved us, even when we were enemies to you. We pray that we would love our enemies and that through it you would work a work of redemption and reconciliation that we could never even have dreamed or imagined. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.